Welcome to Fretnot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretnot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, inventor of the original nylon string for guitar, my string of choice, and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Polish guitarist Kasia Smolarek. We've never actually met in person, but over the last couple of years, we've gotten to know a little bit about each other, and especially each other's work and thoughts. This episode is a little bit more of a conversation than an interview, but we covered some topics I think are truly some of the most interesting we've had on the podcast, and are things that I think are really important for the development of our industry and the education structures that hold it up. What is a lesson that you've learned that's been the most meaningful to you? So I was thinking about this lesson and I think that the like game changer for me was uh, to learn to question everything. And um, by question everything, I, I just mostly mean it in musical sense. And it was basically when I entered here, uh, Mozarteum with Marco Tamayo. During our lessons, I just got a lot of these questions coming from him being like, why do you do this? You know, why do you play this fingering? Why do you play this dynamic? Like, what's your argument for that? And I was like, wow, I don't know, you know. And, um, because I think that we, uh, quite often take things for granted or do a lot of things without really thinking them through but just like instinctively and then you know it just seems so um close to like an established version of a piece that we're like yeah i'm good i'm I'm playing it you know fine and then but you, when you start asking yourself like really like why do i want to play it like this you know or how um how do i feel about like this chord or this line you know and this is really when you start coming up with things that you wouldn't have considered before. I wonder when you are asking why, what kind of answers are you coming up with? Is it I enjoy this or a research-based answer? Yeah, well, like you need to know why you enjoy it too, you know, because I think that there is a message behind what you play and you need to know what this message is. And of course, there is a part of research in it, too. But like you need to be familiarized with the research. And if you break the rule, you need to know what the rule is sort of thing, you know, and why you're breaking it. So let's say if you have um, <laughs> I'm just going to give a, like a very um, direct example. <laughs> So if you have a chromatic line in a piece, let's say, or like a falling chromatic line, then you know it from like from the Baroque times or even from the Greek that this means something like sad. This is like a sad gesture or like a tragic gesture. And usually we play these lines connected, legato. And so if you separate it, then 
it could be interpreted um, by a listener as something ironic or humorous or grotesque. And now the, uh, the, the question is like, if you want it or not, you know, because, you know, like you cannot escape the context that you're in. There are like certain ways to understand things and um, willingly or not, you know, you will understand them in a certain way. And now you cannot just say or think that your audience is not going to know the context because maybe they do, you know. And then if you want to play something that you like, let's say, but then they receive the message and they like understand it differently than you're like missing the point. And I, I think it's not fair to think that your audience will not know the context, you know, because I think the the main like argument for people to abandon the research is that nobody knows it anyway, sort of thing. But what if they do, you know, then like they will not understand what you want to say. People have studied music always, you know, and I think we are just um, building up on the same base. And um, even though in the past there would be different, let's say, trends or different schools of doing things, we all relate more or less to the same thing in the end. Well, I think I actually have to disagree with you there because obviously the context has changed over time and the context is completely different for you as it is for me in fact for every experience of it it's a completely different context um context is always in flux even how we look at history now is completely dependent on our current context uh, so we'd never have access to what the true context of a situation was even if you had been there um, if two people had been there, we would have completely different opinions of, of an event. And I wanted to go back to one thing that you said, which it made it sound, perhaps I'm, um, perhaps I'm reading this wrong, but it made it sound as though the belief is that, or your belief is that people embody different interpretations because they believe that the audience is ignorant. Um, about concepts and that they can get away with something in inverted commas. Um, there's two things that I find difficult about that. The first one is, um, I think the perpetuation of that belief that playing in a certain way is disrespectful, either looking backwards into the past, which again, we don't have access to the context of, or looking in front of us at the audience who, again, we don't have access to the context of is basically down to the fact that creatives have a desire for more power and claim to that power in a field where their output is temporary and fleeting. Um, and the second thing is that I really don't think that anybody can be more or less ignorant about creation, really, I guess, in, in a nutshell. I think that culture of citing and validating musical decisions through research really depends on whether you believe that anybody holds claim on a written manuscript's interpretation. I, I think that we might disagree you know, here. <laughs> everybody as a performer has their own right of interpreting these um, historical sources, you know? Because I think what the problem here is mm -hmm. that a lot of people take a book by Quince 
And then they say, okay, Kwan says this. And then they interpret this their own way. And they make it a rule and they become like obsessed with this. And it's actually funny to see because, you know, if you ask people uh, like these dogmatic, let's say, people. Um, <laughs> so what what's your reference? You know, why why do you think this particular thing is a rule? They will quote the same thing, even though they have like extremely different opinions, you know. And I think this makes you free to make up, make your own mind also. Make yourself familiar with um, historical research, and then you make your own opinion on that. Well, but if we admit that we can have infinite opinions on an opinion, and that we're free to interpret reference in whatever way we like, and that we do it on a day-to-day -day basis, willingly or unwillingly, consciously or unconsciously, then surely we're just as free to use our own taste as reference, right? I think it's valuable to have historical research that you can reference as a point of departure in a conversation with somebody who demands it to sort of save yourself. But in my mind, you know, we, we aren't detectives trying to find clues that lead to an answer. You know, we play music. Historical research is essentially somebody else making their own interpretation or their own opinions, their own reconstruction of what they think is happening or should be happening in the music. And much of it can be interesting and valuable for us. Um, and make us feel less alone. But I think there is just as much value in believing in your own taste as a point of departure. I think that desire to make being familiar with research necessary is just a masked insecurity that what we do can't be enhanced by the pursuit of knowledge and that in essence, we can't ever achieve a state in which the musical decisions we make are done so in consideration of a greater truth, you know? <laughs> I guess the one thing that it can provide is perhaps a little bit more confidence in the decisions that you're making. Do you feel like you're more confident now that you are asking why and that you're making these decisions based on something else other than your personal interpretation? Yeah, definitely. But I think I still have a long way to go, you know? I remember when I first came to Mozarteum, it came really as a shock to me. He just starts asking these questions and people, they, they don't really think about it before. Like you play the fingering because it's written out and you don't question yourself. Is it a good fingering? You know, maybe there is a better one. Or like you mm, mm. thoughtlessly just copy a version that you've heard of a piece, you know, and you're maybe not even aware of that. And then he goes like, why do you play it like this? And they're like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> Music is always first and then... And then based on what you want to do musically, you choose your way to play it technically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think sometimes we uh, we get stuck uh, because of the limits that uh, our instrument have has. We get limited by the fact that we play the guitar and maybe we want to do something, but we are not capable of doing it. But many times we don't even think of what we want to do. But we start from the technique side, you know, what would be easier for us to do or what is what seems impossible to do, you know. And then mm -hmm. I guess a way out of this would be to think about the music like without the instrument first and imagine how you want to hear it. Or imagine it being played on another instrument, like on a piano or something. And then based on that, you know, you can clearly see what you're doing 
because of the limits that you have and what you really want to do, you know? Yeah, it is interesting because it seems like there is a kind of, there's a break in the triangle somewhere between what's capable and the instrument and the repertoire that we have. One of the main things we always talk about with guitar is the limitations of the instrument, which is funny for a load of people that play guitar. <laughs> I used to really subscribe to that idea. I'd think, yeah, how can I get around this? How can we project more volume or project the image that I'm still playing a note when it's when actually I'm just miming playing a note because it's so intensely quiet? I am thinking a little bit more and more that those solutions should probably be found on the guitar because if we're always trying to bypass the limits we kind of overlook the qualities mm, yeah i mean i i guess i prefer more to like fingering or voicing or like chords that are unplayable yeah I more think. than the, the volume volume thing because um yeah i mean you cannot do anything about the volume, but you can choose your fingering, you know, you can introduce your changes to the score. What is a lesson that you would like to impart? If I were to give a lesson, let's say to impart a lesson to my younger self, for example, or people who are mm. like my younger self in their teens or like entering the university, I would say try to look for independence from as early on as you can and try to look for your own way to do things and to make your own decisions because i feel like as students we depend on our teachers a lot and what they say we usually take for granted but this is quite limiting in the long run because we like switch off our our own thinking you know I mean, you shouldn't be playing just like your teacher wants, right? You should be playing the way you want it. And um, obviously, like teachers feedback is super important. But I think before consulting anything with your teacher, you should you should know what what is the thing that you want to do. So like, ask all of these questions and have your own arguments. And I think that we don't usually think that we're entitled to our own opinion when we are mm -hmm. still, you know, in the educational process because we don't know enough. But the point is that you're going to make bad decisions anyway. And um, actually making like bad decisions and having bad ideas is better than not having any ideas because maybe years later you're gonna look back and say okay this was horrible you know but because your taste is gonna change anyway and you're gonna learn more anyway but what will stay with you is like this process of um yeah asking yourself these questions you know and finding finding um the arguments for the things that you do yeah, indeed. It's basically getting yourself to the point where you can be asking why. All the time, yeah, right? exactly. It's true. We don't ask how a lot when we're young. And maybe that's, uh, I think it ha also has something to do with the teaching practice, because I think a lot of teachers are quite used to not really asking a lot of questions to the child. It's just mm -hmm. trying to get you to the point where you can do something. That time where you're first introduced to the instrument is so important 
So it's tricky to know how to make a balance between giving enough information, right? Or guiding someone, but then also leading them to sort of guided discovery, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. because obvi obviously you need to be showing stuff, you know, so that people mm -hmm. know what they can do. But there is a point where I would really like for people to, uh, for teachers, <laughs> <laughs> to ask their students, you know, how many different ways of playing this you can can you find you know like mm -hmm. instead of teaching them one way teaching them to explore many different ways of doing things you mm -hmm. know this is really something that is quite absent in music education i think like we're not used to learning this way and we we are not used to see teachers teach this way true we're not really used to asking questions i guess also perhaps because for so many of us when we're young our teachers are so important to us and we don't want to seem stupid and questions always seem like you don't know something so there's not really the right environment for you to be able to ask a question that might be stupid in inverted commas mm. um, because you're so scared you know when you're young you're constantly and through your teenage years what a bad time to ask questions and believe in yourself that this is okay um, or to even ask questions of yourself I mean what an awful time for it one of the reasons for that would be that mm -hmm. if you study something you want to be good at it and as soon as mm -hmm. you get the communicate that something's good and something's wrong then you're gonna go for the good thing you know <laughs> and you know especially if you have ambition and you you know you want to excel at what you do then you're gonna be like i need you to tell me what the good thing is and i'm gonna do it you know it just doesn't work like this with the arts because it's um really important to find your own way to do things mm. like your personal way yeah personal it's way. kind of interesting because i think what happens a lot is that you as a student, or at least this is probably my singular experience, but I'm going to project it onto everybody now. Um, but in my <laughs> singular experience, I, I found that actually, um, I couldn't draw a lot of logical lines between things. For instance, in music, something that I think a lot of people find when they're studying is, um, the correlation between practice and achievement in a classroom setting. Okay. When you're practicing, when you are young, you rarely know what you're doing, right? Yeah. I think most of us would agree. It's like somebody tells you one day that you need to sit down with your instrument for an hour a day and you're just like, okay, but you don't really know why you're doing this. It seems almost like it's to familiarize yourself with this thing. Um, <laughs> and so you just do a little bit. And the, the, the promise is that if you do this every, every day for one hour, by the time you come back in next week, you will be much better and your teacher will be pleased with you. <laughs> and I'm sure that we've all had the experience of having not sat down with the instrument an hour a day and going into the lesson, the teacher asking, so have you practiced? And you say, mm-hmm. And then you start playing something and they say, oh yeah, that's good. And you think, whoa, I got away with something yeah. here. And then on the other hand, in another week, an alternate week, you might sit down and practice for an hour a day. Again, not really knowing what you're doing. I think that's important to the equation of this. Mm -hmm. And then come to your lesson the next week and the teacher says to you, well, you can't have practiced this. It sounds awful. 
And then you think, hey, but you told me, and now I've lost seven hours of my life and I'm sitting here and got six hours or I don't know, you know, and so the correlation doesn't make sense. So I think what happens is that all of those things you learn when you're a kid, like if I go to this place, there's this, it's that kind of secure attachment style. And then what happens is when you start studying something in the arts, the correlation between work and result is so strange and elusive that it's yeah. almost like your secure attachment style just disappears. And then obviously you don't know what questions to ask because you think like, well, some weeks I play amazingly, apparently, because you don't <laughs> criticize yourself at all. You just listen to what your teacher says and you, you know, you take that for law. So you kind of don't trust yourself either. So we all develop this sort of imposter syndrome. Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to what you're saying about this work achievement relation quite well mm -hmm. because when I was a child um so like since basically since I started playing the guitar yeah or like maybe since the second year of playing the guitar I would be practicing for two hours a day mm -hmm. every day and um so the equation was like super easy because like nobody practiced as much so I was the best <laughs> right <laughs> because other children other children play like half an hour or maybe they didn't practice every day right and i play two mm -hmm. hours per day so you know i was the best and that was like easy you know and i was like i really enjoyed it it's crazy to for me to think about how much confidence i had back then i was like i'm the best you know i was like going to a competition and i'm like i'm gonna win it you know and then i remember <laughs> Because I like from the first competition I did, I was winning like all of them. I mean, they were not like international competitions or anything, but I had only like good experiences, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Germany and I got the second prize and everybody was so happy. And I was like, how come did I get a second prize? You know, I'm supposed mm -hmm. to win it because I'm the best, you know, this isn't definitely not a thing anymore since, you know, since you become an adult, like the... The amount of practice is not a, such an important factor anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess as you get older as well, you realize what practice is for. And then it becomes a little bit more clear how you can get there from not playing something to being able to play something well. You know, yeah. I think when you're little also, because the problems you come up against are, are smaller. So you have a bigger achievement rate. Whereas, I think it has a lot to do with the relation between the stage you're at and the speed that you're learning new things so mm -hmm. it's like quite normal that if you pick something up like something new then you're gonna you know make a lot of progress within a month mm -hmm. you know and then at some point it just gets like super steady mm -hmm. and it just barely moves so you cannot really see this progress like day to day and um this is why you know practicing as a child I think it's also easier, you know, than practicing as an adult. Mm -hmm. Something about progress as well is I think that it, it needs like a point A to a point B. It's something that goes in a direction of something. Like I want to progress with my speed on this, or mm -hmm. I want to make it cleaner or get faster. Usually it's, usually even if it's something to do with it being clean, it's either an efficiency thing or a speed thing whether it's efficiency but well anyway let's not get it <laughs> when you start playing something it's like the progress aim is to make it not alien 
to you. And so you can achieve that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Like you can sign it off. Yeah. And then if you don't work out where you're going next with it, just playing it again and again and again will not help because you are familiarized with it. So there's no, no further you really can go in familiarizing yourself. You know, you need to like, yeah. you need to throw your, your anchor a little bit further in one direction of, okay, I want to improve this. Because otherwise, of course, it stagnates. But, you know, I'm going to tell you one thing. Because I recently did this, like, creativity research. I mean, it's it's a big word to say research. I mean, I read, like, some stuff about it. <laughs> and uh, I read that, like, there is so much research on, like, technical um, side of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, what works, what doesn't, you know, how to achieve a goal and stuff like that. But there is like so little research on how people find ideas uh, to play a piece. Like there is almost nothing about it, you know. And uh, I think it's quite interesting to see that we usually when we practice, we mostly focus on the technical side. Mm-hmm. But I think we don't devote enough time to think how we how we want to play the piece, you know, like like really looking for these interpretation ideas. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe part of it comes from the way that we have polarized robotics from humans, robots from humans. There was no humanics. What? <laughs> no, ro- <laughs> like so, like robots and humans are in two completely different sides of the spectrum, right? And so there's this kind of deification of what it is to be human. When people say mm-hmm. you need to leave your practice room and go and walk in nature, otherwise you'll have nothing to bring to your music. What they're doing is deifying the human process of being alive, right? So we glorify it as if you can't play really well if you've been locked in a room your whole life, which you probably genuinely could, especially if you have access to a lot of listening material. But I mean, I think what happens is a lot of people leave the creative side. It doesn't surprise, you know, it doesn't surprise me. There's not a lot of research about this. People kind of isolate the creative side because I think Creativity has been painted with this brush of like spontaneity and living in the present and taking from your impulses. It's so impulsive creativity. Um, And so what ends up happening is we basically just practice technical things and then expect creativity to flow from within us. But obviously creativity is also a process creation is a process right yeah. and so yeah. it, it really it doesn't surprise me but now I can see it with a lot of clarity I think it definitely has something to do with that that we really um we're eager to dismiss the robotics of our lives because we know that we have this human x factor on our side um which is reflected in a lot of places in society I guess but in this one it's the most counterintuitive I'd probably say because then you end up feeling very not creative in the end because I don't know because it takes time and most of the time when you're focusing on doing something technically on stage you do not make sense if you haven't at least sat down once to listen to what you're doing yeah it's as if you you thought that as long as you solve your technical problems and you feel inspired you're good sort of thing yeah 
exactly like but there is there is like a huge gap here you know because you can be like super inspired but like you have to work out how you're gonna go about this inspiration you know like but it's crazy i mean i have to say that when i was a child i genuinely thought that if i go on stage with a piece that i can play and i think about something you know like like an emotion mm -hmm. then people will feel it you know just from me thinking about it they would feel it mm -hmm. you know but, but then you know i had a couple of like very average performances doing it this way mm -hmm. and then i realized that you know it maybe it doesn't work like this necessarily yeah and it's disappointing huh i also had that when i was younger yeah. <laughs> and i remember thinking but hey i i laid my heart on the stage for you why didn't you take it? How rude. <laughs> yeah. What is the lesson that you are currently working on? So I guess now um, I'm learning to become more confident as a performer, which for me is not like the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, because I think it's like super important to be a confident performer because like you can have a lot of great ideas, but if you are like too scared to present them mm -hmm. in a convincing way, then it just doesn't matter if you have them or not. Right. That's true. I guess it's not so easy to be confident when you're doing like so many competitions, right? Because I've been doing a lot. Mm -hmm. You play the way you're happy with. Mm -hmm. And then you receive this like feedback, you know, and or like points. And um, it can be harsh. And um, I think it's quite hard to like not lose confidence at this point. I think it goes back to that. Uh, perhaps it even can tie in with that. Why? Because I think finding the things that you can be confident in and the things that you can know from yourself that you... Uh, don't mind for instance people talking about people saying is mm -hmm. is really tough but um, once you start to find one little thing that you think okay well I I do this and I don't mind if people say it because it's it's the truth um, mm -hmm. you can draw a lot of other little lines from that it can be something really tiny when I was studying in America I went to have eight master classes with different teachers and I played the same piece for all of them Wow, that that could have been an experiment. You, you should yeah. have written, written a paper on this. Indeed, maybe I shall in the future. But it was it was all people who I respected a lot. Um, the first one yeah, yeah, was yeah. with Alvaro Pieri. I played for Lukas Kurapachevsky. I played for Judica Alperoy. Like all these people who were kind of like my heroes. You know, these people who mm -hmm. I thought, if you tell me what to do, I'll do it. And then went everywhere and everybody told me completely conflicting things. Um, and it was the first experience of my life where I had to find what personally for me, I thought was good advice, which things I thought, oh yeah, actually that makes sense for me and which things I didn't. And sometimes there were conflicting parts of that. Um, but it's, it's really complicated because when you're young, you're not in the power position where you can turn around and say, if someone says to you, like, this piece should be slower, you just are never in the position to say, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, I, I really think students 
what they should do more is to say, why do you think so? And see what the teacher says, you know? Why should I play it slower? Because I think sometimes um, for everybody, it's pretty hard to separate your personal taste from like the, the objective truth. And if you like the piece, you just cannot help but like impose your ideal version of it mm-hmm. on a student, you know. But then as a student, you shouldn't be obliged to follow. If there is no reasonable argument, if it's just a matter of taste of somebody, then mm-hmm. you shouldn't be obliged to follow. Because it could be, you know, like um <laughs> this research-based thing mm-hmm. that maybe you're not really a fan of, but... <laughs> um Yeah, like a reasonable argument, you know, because this is influenced by that and that other thing is played this way. So, you know, so you should be playing your piece this way because to show this influence or something, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I really wish, you know, students would be like, not like rebel saying I'm not going to do it, but just like, hey, teacher, just can you tell me why you think so? (laughs) You know. Yeah, I think it also has to do something with the selective process because I think when you're young, you're rarely with a teacher because you like their playing, right? Because I think as you mm-hmm. get older and you have to, so for instance, university is the first time we kind of do it, is like search for a player who you like, you like their playing, mm-hmm. right? You like the way they look at things. So then there's a it's a different relationship already because it's almost like an apprenticeship. You can learn just yeah. as much from like seeing the way that they look at things or how they, how they play something or, um, talking to them about what they think. And you already take it with the terms and conditions that you know that this is how this person thinks. And that's the reason you're there. Whereas when you're young, you just kind of mm-hmm. get thrown into the bag with some, someone. <laughs> I guess looking for objective truth is a, maybe it's, like the choice of wording, but there's something about those two things that I I don't feel can really fit together. It's kind of, it's difficult to say, like, separate your taste from what is, because what is, isn't. There is no is, you know? I'm not sure. Well, but I mean, in in all of life, it's not just in music, it's just there's no, there's no solid, nothing is static, right? Everything's constantly in flux. So there can be no is, there can be no, um, no one point of departure because even the people who are the most informed, let's say, about something have a completely different point of departure to you and the application of what they're doing comes from a completely different point of departure too. Um, it's yeah. not, I'm not saying that research is useless. It's, it's not that at all. You know, you said like, oh, maybe you don't like that idea. That's not that. It's just, mm-hmm. I, there's some kind of issue I have between like the separation. How can you separate your taste? Even if you separate your taste from what you think is objective truth, what you believe is objective truth is colored by what your personal taste is. Right. <laughs> so I guess maybe in like a more, actionable way kind of dismissing the concept of an objective truth would probably be quite helpful for younger students because it would lead them to this kind of discovery um if you believe that there is an objective truth then there's always the possibility that your teacher actually is not not separating their personal taste or their ego but that they are in fact just telling you the objective truth in which case how 
how do you distinguish that from somebody's taste? You know, it's, I mean, it's just a mess, really. This, all this stuff, I think really <laughs> like what you say that I like and that's good is the idea of, of realizing that everybody has their personal taste. Um, and maybe something that would yeah. be useful then is that until you make a decision based on what you want, because until a point where you know what you want, would be to allow students to move freely between teachers and collect a lot of information at a young age. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but I think this is taking it to an extreme a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is still information, you know, you can interpret the information in many different ways that depend on your personal taste. Also, your selection of information is based on your personal taste, but the information still exists, you know. Information and, is driven um, by human interaction, right? Plenty of things that are, are proven by science will be proven differently by science in 10, 20, 100 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. But then, I mean, like, the more informed you get, the better off you are, you know. You cannot just, like, reject everything because everything is personal. I think in case, for example, in case science is having an argument and gives a counter argument, then you're better off knowing both than knowing none. But rejecting you know? is not not knowing. There's a difference between that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, in yeah, classical yeah. music, yeah. and this is part of the reason I think that I I feel so strongly about this, at least what we're talking about, it appears that way because I've talked a lot, but is because <laughs> people always, always in classical music uh, associate r rejection of a certain idea of something that is historical as ignorance. But it is not always serving. In fact, plenty of people who completely reject are people who know an incredible amount about what has come before. So these things, I think, should be separated because those things are, they, they just, they mean something different. I'm not trying to say that if, like, there is a one good way to play a piece, for example. But I think what we do is largely based on the context. And, uh, like, when you perform, it's, um, it happens in time and you play for a certain public. It doesn't really matter what you do in your practice room, but you sort of need to adjust what you do to what the um, understanding capabilities of your audience are so that you sort of get this flow together, right? And then like, I think there, there can be some guidelines to doing this, regardless of the artistic profession. There would be some clues that are read in one way or another, and you just cannot, cannot really escape it because you're using them like without being aware of this. Mm -hmm. You're interacting with your audience, so you gotta um, deliver what you want to deliver and you want them to understand what you want to deliver. And these can be like two different things, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you cannot really know how or what they will understand. Mm -hmm. You only know what you want to deliver and you're using the tools that are known to you but you cannot really know what the the other side knows mm -hmm. and how the other side reads things right mm -hmm.